Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast series from Oxford University. I'm Guy Collander and every month I speak to a former student about their days at Oxford and the impact of their studies upon their career. This episode focuses on the numbers of everyday life, the myths and the realities. To guide us through the deluge of data, we are joined by Tim Harford, a best-selling economist, prize-winning journalist and the presenter of More or Less on BBC Radio 4. Tim Harford, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Let's begin with your studies in PPE, philosophy, politics and economics at Brasenose College in the early 1990s. What subjects grabbed your attention as an undergraduate? Well, I've, I fell into PPE, as I think quite a few people do. It's the, the classic subject for people who have no idea what they want to do with their lives. In fact, I nearly did law. Uh, I, I arrived at Brasenose at an open day and um, was planning to go to the law talk and the PPE talk, but they were at the same time. So I asked the student who was showing me around, which should I do? And she said, well, you don't want to do law. So I went to the PPE talk. I mean, it's it's amazing the the coincidences, the accidents that, that your, your fate depends on. Always assumed I would drop economics. I actually took a letter from one of my tutors, Peter Sinclair of Brasenose, the end of the first year. I was, and he very gently pointed out that I'd done quite well at economics and I seemed to enjoy economics and possibly I might consider not dropping economics. And it was only at that point that I thought, oh yes, of course, I really like economics. Why would I drop it? So that little bit of guidance, gentle guidance, gentle advice at the right time, very important. And that's something we hear a lot from uh, our alumni voices interviewees, actually, the serendipity involved, the changing of subjects and the the guidance of of tutors, how crucial that is. And you later returned to complete um, an MPhil in economics uh, back at Oxford at Brasenose again. What was your thesis about? My thesis was in auction theory, which is a a branch of game theory. Game theory is all about trying to model um, strategic interactions where you've got several people uh, they're maybe cooperating, they're maybe competing, but they have to very much think about what the other person is going to do and adjust to that and, and figure that the other person will adjust to what they do. Um, and auctions are a nice, pure example of that. Can you play this game, manipulate your bids in such a way as to exploit their budget? Can you use up their budget and then uh, pick up bargains towards the end of the auction? That's what the thesis is about. and. I showed that you could, and that helped to resolve um, a puzzle in auction theory. There's something called the declining price anomaly, where you have identical items auctioned again and again and again, and they always seem to be cheaper later on in the series of auctions, and it's not clear why that should be. So my thesis was one explanation of why that might happen. Auctions are now used all around us, big auctions, small auctions, and and often um, that we're not even aware of. For example, every time you do a Google search, Google is running an auction for advertising to see who is willing to pay the most to put those adverts down the side. So, I mean, there there must be hundreds of millions of auctions run just by Google every day. And what was the impact of your time at Oxford upon your career? Well, I can't imagine having had anything like the career I've had without Oxford. Uh, partly, of course, the the things that I learned, um, partly the inspiring students I studied alongside. Uh, I went I went to a state school, and uh, it was a good quality state school. I was very I was very lucky to to suddenly be exposed to 
this huge range of people who had all kinds of different education from all over the world. Many of them had had gap years. They'd done amazing things. And it, it, it really expanded my horizons tremendously. And I think particularly the mentors I had, I mentioned Paul Klemperer, I mentioned Peter Sinclair. There have been others who have given me superb advice and continue to do so. So um, I don't think I would have got anywhere close to, to where I've got without my Oxford education. And you joined the Financial Times in 2003. And your long-running column in the paper reveals the economic ideas behind everyday experiences. The million-selling book The Undercover Economist followed in 2005 with jargon-free analysis. What did you learn from researching and writing the book? Well, I think the main thing I learned is that I, I love writing. Actually, the book came first. I wrote the book in 2001, 2002, and then spent years trying to find a publisher. And it was only after I'd started to have some experience at the FT. I was an intern there in 2003. I joined full-time in 2006. It was, that uh, made the, I think, made the difference to the publishers. That and the fact that I was probably working on the book and um, making it less rubbish. And the American subtitle of the book, of The Undercover Economist, was Why You Can Never Buy a Decent Used Car. So could you tell us why can you never buy a decent used car? So this is a beautiful piece of economic theory from uh, 1970, published by George Akerlof, who uh, later went on to win the Nobel Memorial Prize. It was one of the first theories I encountered as an undergraduate, and I just thought, oh, that's so clever, that's so elegant, that's so interesting. But the basic insight there is, imagine that you've got people trying to sell used cars, and they know whether the car's good or not, but the buyer doesn't know whether the car's good or not. So then the question is, well, how do, you, how do you find a price? And it turns out it's actually very difficult to find a price, because if the seller price is high, the, the buyers will think, well, some of these cars won't be very good, I shouldn't pay a high price. But if the seller price is low, the buyers will correctly infer that the seller wouldn't sell a good car at that low price, the seller would rather just keep a good car. So therefore only bad cars get sold right. at a low price. You will never see good cars sold on second hand because there's no way to prove that they're good and if there's no way to prove that they're good, then um, there's no way to collect the value, there's no way to collect the right price. So this is called the adverse selection problem. And of course, it's a, it's a nice, simple, elegant theory. In reality, there are all kinds of ways you might try and get around it. But it's a, it's a very good starting point for understanding why uh, second-hand cars usually suck. And since 2007, you've explained and debunked numbers in the news, politics and everyday life on More or Less on BBC Radio 4. You've also won numerous awards and were named Economics Commentator of the Year in 2014 by the Comment Awards. What are you most proud of uncovering? The thing that I'm most proud of, actually, is uh, an article I wrote about big data a couple of years ago. Big data is this buzzword you now hear. A lot of people with a, an incentive to, to sell the idea of big data to us, um, even though it's slightly vague about what it might mean. I mean, I think it, it does refer to something, but people use it in different ways. I broadcast a piece for the BBC, and I wrote a column, uh, well, a, a long feature for the Financial Times, explaining that... And big data is, uh, is exciting and it can change the way you know, we understand the world. But fundamentally, big data is, is still just data. And the mistakes that we make with regular data, we can make exactly the same mistakes with big data. And to some extent, uh, we can make it it's more serious because we get overconfident, the data sets are so large, we don't really understand what's being done. A lot of these big data sets are secret. 
so they can't be audited, they can't be examined. So uh, I'm very proud of that piece. And as well as the serious stories and the numbers behind alcohol, <laughs> wealth inequality, refugees, you've covered more light-hearted subjects. Are there any partic- in particular that stand out for you there? Actually, my favourite one is a light-hearted treatment of a serious subject. So we were trying to understand after the, uh, the financial crisis, around the general election of 2010, there was a big political debate about the deficit and was the right was austerity the right move should the government be should we say austerity but actually initially what it was was George Osborne raising taxes so raising taxes cutting spending was that the right approach or should instead the government try to stimulate the economy by continuing to run a big deficit which is what the the, the Labour government had done um, in 2009 and we uh, we resurrected the uh, the old children's television show Trumpton from the 60s and the 70s, which I watched as a boy. I loved Trumpton. And we got permission to use all of the sound effects. So, so my producer went back painstakingly clipping dialogue from Trumpton, sound effects from Trumpton, and you, you effectively could, could reconstruct um, Trumpton conversations, but with it, you know, saying all kinds of totally outrageous things. So uh, we just explored the economics of austerity in Trumpton. And I think we really threw some light on the subject. And in your book, Adapt, Why Success Always Starts With Failure, you call for us to approach complex problems, such as the deficit, with a willingness to experiment. Why was that your conclusion? Well, I'd looked at many problems in in the course of writing the book. I looked at the war in Iraq. I looked at climate change, the financial crisis... A lot of people think we have a problem with innovation um, and, and, and various others at development and found that basically where problems were being solved, they were being solved step by step in an experimental way. Because anything you can solve by just sitting in your armchair and thinking really hard, you know, it's, that's been solved already. All those problems have been solved. It's the, it's the tough ones that remain. And the world's a very complex place. There are uh, always really interesting uh, feedback uh, loops going on, unintended consequences. So you need good, rigorous experiment. Um, I mean, that, of course, you, you need to think as well, you need philosophy, you need theory, but you need to go out there and you need to experiment and you need to be willing to fail. And the psychology of failure and of acknowledging that you failed and that you need to try something else, that's very interesting, as indeed is the politics of failure. Politicians will never admit failure. That's one of the problems. Uh, yeah, if you're, say, a scientist, you would be happy to run... Uh, a number of experiments, testing different theories, and you would you would be comfortable with the idea that some experiments might not work at all, and other experiments might might demonstrate that a theory is wrong, or you know they might demonstrate that the experiment is a success, but the approach that the experiment is testing is a failure. You're comfortable with that. I mean, it might hurt, but the reason you're comfortable with that is because one bit of progress can then be applied quite widely. You discover one new idea. And it can be used everywhere. With politics, the calculus is completely flipped on its head. So you can experiment with a bunch of things, and nine out of ten of them can be a success. Which is the one that's going to be discussed in the Daily Mail, in the Guardian, in the Telegraph? Which is the one that's going to be on your the opposition's lips at the next general election? It'll be the one failure. And so, of course, politicians are very risk-averse. And one of the, I think, underappreciated facets of this is not only are they a bit cautious, they're not very interested in gathering data. Because, of course, that if you gather good data, sooner or later, 
you will gather comprehensive proof that you've made a mistake. Whereas if you never gather any data, you can never be shown to have got anything wrong. But of course, you never really learn either. Evidence-based policy or policy-based evidence? Yeah, evidence-based <laughs> policy it hasn't really <laughs> caught on. We're still trying. And you live in Oxford now, have renewed your connections with the university as you are a visiting fellow at Nuffield College. What does th this involve? Nuffield is a wonderful centre of social science in Oxford. A lot of brilliant economists, political scientists, statisticians, sociologists, and, and so on. Uh, and visiting fellow might imply that I, I'm hanging out at Nuffield itself in an office somewhere. Um, but no, I, I, I give occasional uh, lectures, uh, very occasional. Uh, as it happens, I gave a talk at Nuffield uh, jointly with the Reuters Institute for Journalism last week on the abuse of statistics in politics and journalism. But I will also just uh, go in, meet the fellows, have dinner from time to time, those fine Oxford dinners. Uh, most wonderful for me is that I get a library card and I spend a lot of time in the Bogdan Library. I never really appreciated what an amazing privilege that was as an undergraduate. <laughs> but as a grown-up, I can say it's, it is truly a brilliant place to work and, and it's a wonderful resource. So, yeah, that, that, that's what I do. I'm not there every day, but I'm very, very grateful for the connection with, with such a wonderful institution. And finally, do you have any advice for our listeners as they navigate the countless economic decisions and economic complexity in their everyday lives? Though there are occasionally things that come up from economics that I think uh, pose good advice. And so I will, I will give one piece of, of economics-based advice, which is um, beware of sunk costs. We discussed earlier in this conversation how I had made these decisions. I made a decision that I was going to... to uh, to drop economics and it actually took a, a good nudge to to make me realize that was the wrong decision I think it's very easy for us to get stuck in the decisions that we've made and to think about the time we've spent the the money we've spent the emotional commitment we've we've invested in in a relationship in a job in a school in a move to a particular place um, and we have to think about the future rather than the past and so don't allow your past to trap you. Instead, look forward and say, okay, I've made some good decisions, I've made some bad decisions, but they're in the, they're in the past, they're history. I need to think about the future. And Daniel Kahneman, psychologist who won the Nobel Memorial Prize for Economics a few years ago, said, if you want to make good decisions, you have to first make peace with your losses. Fascinating. Very helpful. Tim Harford, thank you very much for showing us how to dissect the numbers and for telling us about your links with Oxford. To listen to other Alumni Voices interviews, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.